Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. You know, one of the most important questions that you will ever have to answer is a question that Jesus himself asked. One of the most important questions Jesus asked in Matthew 16. Earlier, he asked the question, rather, who do men say that I am? And they gave all sorts of various answers. Then he made it a little more specific when he said, but who do you say that I am? That's probably, again, the most important question because how you respond to who Jesus is will be the most important question you'll answer. If Jesus is who the Bible says clearly that he is, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then the only sensible response is to embrace him and trust him as the one that God sent as the Savior. Uh, But if he is not who the Bible says, he is a fraud, a contradiction, then really you're wasting your time in this Christianity thing because you're following a fictional character. He's not who he says he is. So you need to ask yourself and determine who is it that Jesus is? Who is Jesus? And not just who Jesus is to me, but what is the support of the claims of Christ? Who do you say? Who do I say that he is? Now the Apostle John, perhaps he had this in mind when he wrote the what we call the Gospel of John, the account of John, the Gospel of John. You know, there's four Gospels. When you open your New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so maybe John asked this question in the verse in John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, that we're going to look at this morning. John 20, verses 30 through 31 Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John recognized that the importance of answering that question of who Jesus is, that the people that determining the answer to that, that is a response of faith. John, and in his, what we call the Gospel of John, John is trying to persuade. He's trying to persuade his hearers. He's trying to persuade us, uh, as we saw earlier in the verse, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is who he claimed to be, and that by believing that he is the Son of God, that you believe and that you have life in his name. The Apostle John doesn't want you just to believe some generalities, but he wants you to specifically understand who Jesus is. He wants you to believe. John, in the Gospel of John, wants you to know that Jesus is the unseen God, that what you see in Jesus is God of very God, that the claims that Jesus made 
about himself and his identity that he is God, very God. And so this morning as we begin, we're going to begin a new Sunday morning Bible exposition series through the Gospel of John. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to use your Bibles. We use our Bibles around here. If you do not own a Bible or would like to use a Bible, or if you don't have one, we'd certainly like to give you one as a gift. There are Bibles that we have in the back. You're welcome to take those. If you would like a Bible in the version that I use on Sunday morning, the English Standard Version, and you would like to uh, purchase one of those, again, you don't have to buy it if you don't have the money. But if you are like me and you've got more than one Bible, but you want to bring that one because that matches the version, then uh, you're welcome to make a donation towards that so we can give away more Bibles to other people. But however you do it, whether it's on your phone or the tablet or whatever, be engaged in Scripture. And I'm doing something in this series a little different by including a kind of an outline, a listener's guide to help you be more, more engaged in the Word of God. So, uh, so this morning as we begin this, we're beginning a series called Believe. Believe, and that is the Gospel of John. This is a series that will probably take us at least through Easter. So we're going to be in the Gospel of John for some time. And so I encourage you to uh, begin to get to know the Gospel of John. Read it. Uh, go over the, the outline on Sunday mornings or Sunday afternoons or during the week. And so acquaint yourself because, again, John, as we read earlier in verses uh, 30 and 31 of John 20, John has designed his purpose in writing this book is so that you might believe. Now, we know the Bible says in Romans that in chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing how? By the Word of God. And so, regardless of whether you've been in the faith for a little while, you're still checking out the faith, or you're an old-timer in the faith, you still need encouragement to believe. You still need faith. The, the faithful need faith. And so, as we uh, go through and walk through this journey of the ministry and life of Christ, I think we'll all be encouraged regardless of whatever level we're at. You see, the Gospel of John uh, is, uh, someone has said that the Gospel of John is like a pool of water in which a, both a child can wade into and an elephant can swim. The Gospel of John is simple, but yet it's profound. The Gospel of John is simple, like in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's a simple gospel truth. But at the same time, the Gospel of John is also uh, deep theology and deep theological issues that we'll wrestle with a bit when we come to them. But there's something for everybody in the Gospel of John. And look back at chapter 20, verse 31, and then we'll kind of use that in this introduction this morning, kind of as a theme verse, uh, verses 30 and 31. But he said in verse 31, These are written so that you may believe, and that, what are we to believe? That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and by, believe, but, and by believing you may have life in his name. John has a purpose for writing. Every author, when you pick up a book or Maybe you remember in school you had to write a paper and the thing I hated is you always had to write a, remember a thesis statement? You had to write uh, in a sentence what the whole thing was about and you're like, I don't know what it's about. I haven't written yet, so how can I write a sentence of what it's about? But every author 
uh, has a purpose. And, and maybe you've read some books that after the first couple of chapters, you realize this author has no idea of what his purpose is. And you, you know, don't waste your time on it. But John has a very specific purpose to everything that he includes in this account of the life of Christ. Everything is moving to do what? To what he says in verse 30. These are written. Now remember, John 20, there's only 21 chapters, that when he's writing this, this is at the end of the book. So he's kind of summarizing it at the end of the book. He said, look, everything that I've written has been written for the sole purpose is so that you would be strengthened either in your belief already or that you would come to faith, that you would cross the line of faith and believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And this morning, just by way of kind of doing a, um, a flyover, if you will, this morning, we're going to break it down into four, four simple headings this morning to give us kind of a framework or an overview. And the next week, we'll dig into the beginning of chapter 1. But notice with me that, number one, is that the Gospel of John is a selective account of the life of Christ. It is a selective account of the life of Christ. Maybe you wondered why do we have four Gospels that give an account of the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. None of them were intended to be biographies. None of them were intended to be uh, moment by moment, minute by minute, second by second, of, it, of a, like a timeline diary of everything uh, that Jesus did. All of them have some selectivity. Uh, Matthew uh, was, when he wrote, when the Gospel of Matthew, it's much different, and he's writing to an audience. Again, all the Gospel writers have a purpose. His audience is intended for, as a, for a Jewish audience. So when you read Matthew, you'll see the phrase, and this was done to fulfill the Scripture. Why? Because to a Jew, seeing that Jesus Christ is the one that was prophesied to be the Messiah, that was what Matthew is doing. That, he knows his audience there. Mark, which was probably the first written account, timeline of Jesus, really is, we could almost call Mark the gospel according to Peter. Now, why do I say that? Because we know Mark himself was not a disciple, but he was a protege of Peter. So when we read the Gospel of Mark, how did Mark get this information that is recorded in the Gospel of Mark? He got it from Peter. So Peter is, is, uh, uh, is really the, the source, if you will. And Mark presents Jesus as the one who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And then you have Luke. Luke is the longest account of the Gospel records. Luke himself was not a disciple. He actually was a protege of the Apostle Paul. Luke, by profession, was a physician. He was a doctor, so God is not opposed to doctors. And his gospel, when he writes it, he's not aiming at a Jewish audience. He's really writing with a non-Jewish Gentile audience in mind. So that's why his account has that flow and purpose. But again, all of them are giving an account and an overview of the life of Jesus, but like every author, they have different understandings of who their audiences are. But what's interesting about John and the Gospel of John is why it is so different, even though it's included in this uh, a collection of the life of Jesus, 
and why the Gospel of John is different, 93% of the information in John is unique to John. You don't find that in, in the other three Gospels. So John is very unique. Uh, again, as we read earlier in verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. So that means John, as we said, John is being selective in what he chooses. Okay? And John is being selective that everything he includes in there is going for this purpose of what? So that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In John 21, verse 25, the last chapter, uh, John concludes the uh, book where he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So in other words, there is a, a, a massive amount of material that John and the others could have pulled from, but John has a very selective purpose. If you have your Bibles open, just open it up to the very first chapter. Again, we're not going to go through any particular portions, but just kind of, again, this is just a flyover. You notice that where John begins is quite different than where all the other Gospels begin. John begins, uh, when he's beginning about talking about Jesus, he takes Jesus and doesn't begin at his birth. He begins with Jesus in eternity. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. And it's interesting how John, because he has a unique purpose, there's a lot of things that John does not include that we find in the other three Gospel accounts. For example, uh, John does not mention about the birth. He doesn't mention anything about Jesus' baptism. He doesn't mention anything about the temptation in the wilderness. Mark and Luke do that. Uh, there's no list of the 12 disciples. There's no stories of Jesus casting out demons. There's only one parable uh, in the Gospel of John, and we know that Jesus told many parables, um, earthly stories with a spiritual meaning. Uh, Jesus doesn't mention, there's nothing John mentions about uh, what we remember is the transfiguration. Remember when uh, Jesus goes up onto the mountain and, and they see him in his glory? And John, by the way, remember, he was one of the witnesses to that. He doesn't include that. Um, he doesn't include anything about the second coming of Christ. Uh, John gives us, though, the longest and most detailed account of Jesus in the upper room and also Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit. So there's things that John does include that are not included with the others. Some of the other things that is unique in the Gospel of John is John clearly, again, this goes back to that verse 30 and 31, our theme verse this morning. John clearly uh, articulates and shows that Jesus is the eternal God. Yes, Jesus is God, the very God, the eternal God, and that Jesus is the creator of all things, that Jesus alone is the only one begotten of God. For God so loved the world, he gave his what? Only begotten son, his only son. John records the first miracle in John 2 of Jesus turning water into wine. Uh, Jesus, uh, or John includes the only dialogue and record of Nicodemus in John 3, the woman at the well in John 4. Again, these are all unique that we uh, we, we, we come to understand that if John didn't include these things, we wouldn't know anything about them. John alone records the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. John, uh, it's John that we see Jesus 
washing his disciples' feet. Uh, his teaching, as I said, about, about the Holy Spirit, the longest prayer of Jesus is in John 17. John includes that. You don't find that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So why is the Gospel of John different? Is because John has a very specific laser purpose of what he's doing. He's excluding and including details because John, as he said in John 20, 30, and 31, these things are written so that you may believe. John puts everything in a deliberate type of way that's guiding the hearer, the reader along so that you may believe and come to know that Jesus is who he says he is. So John is not only selective, but secondly, in our framework this morning, the Gospel of John is a symbolic account, is a symbolic account of the life of Jesus. Not just selective, but there's, it's a symbolic account. And we talk about symbolic language, you could say there's a, there's a deeper meaning. I don't mean deeper, like ooh, weird meaning or anything like that. It's just that, that there is the surface event, but there's something deeper and more spiritual that we have to see what is being taught here. Uh, now, again, is it that there are things and events that aren't true? It is, when you talk about symbolism, we're not saying there are things that are fictional, that are just made up, that they didn't really happen. In fact, we know in John 21, 24, that uh, John affirms that when he says about himself, this is the disciple, uh, meaning himself, who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So John is a reliable guide uh, in, 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 uh, in that's kind of what I titled here, I didn't mention earlier, but it doesn't matter, is that John is a reliable guide to help us to learn and love Jesus. That's why it's so important as we begin this journey through the Gospel of John. Now, it's interesting, uh, in this deeper significance, this symbolic account, the other Gospels refer to miracles. They talk about the miracles of Jesus. And Jesus had numerous miracles, but John calls them signs. He doesn't call them miracles, even though they are miracles. But he says in, uh, and again, it won't be on the screen, in verse uh, 20, 30, remember, uh, we, uh, yeah, there it is, that Jesus did many other signs. So John, instead of calling them miracles, and they are miracles, but signs. What do signs do? They point to something. They give you direction. Remember, what is John's purpose? He's pointing. He's giving direction. Um, if you're like me, sometimes you don't pay attention to road signs. Right? And my wife agrees with that. Sometimes your brain and your mind is in la-la land, and she says, where are you going? And I'll just finally admit and say, I have no clue. I've missed my exit and the turn. I'm daydreaming about something else. But if you watch the signs, they're there for a reason. What? So you don't get lost. You don't get detoured. Why? And so again, as you, as you think about these signs in John, this is to me interesting, that there are there's many, many of these accounts. Uh, for example, uh, and again, this will not be on the screen. It's not in your outline there. Just, just kind of to listen and pick up. Uh, remember in John chapter 6, when Jesus fed the 5,000, Jesus' opponents uh, who opposed him asked him this question. They said, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? They weren't really interested. I mean, they're like, 
you know, show us a trick. Show us a sign. What? Give us a sign so that we may believe you, uh, even though their heart wasn't really uh, sincere. And they said, give us a sign. And Jesus said, I'll give you a sign. In fact, in the Gospel of John, there are many signs, but what makes John really unique, and you see this breakdown in the uh, handout that I gave you, is that there are seven specific sign miracles in the Gospel of John uh, that are demonstrated. Why? Because John is directing and pointing people to believe and faith in Christ. These seven startling signs. By the way, you know, seven in, in Hebrew is a perfect number. But even though Jesus gave these clear signs, miracles, if you will, we still know that people, some believed because of the signs, and even though they, they saw the tremendous act of God that, I mean, remember even Nicodemus in John 3 said this when he met Jesus? He said, clearly we know that you must come from God because no man could do the miracles that you do. He acknowledged that, but just because people see signs does not mean that they will respond in saving faith. We think, oh, you know, if God, you could just perform some miracle. And, there's, and again, I'm not opposed to miracles. I think God still does miracles. I'm not opposed to that. But miracles don't save anybody, all right? All they do are signposts that meant to point. And you've got to be careful because if you're just looking for some miracle, do you realize the, the Bible? Remember in, when Moses was before Pharaoh's court? Do you realize that even Pharaoh's magicians could imitate the miraculous, right? Do you remember they could give a... Remember the Bible says that Satan can masquerade. What is a masquerade? Is, is put, on a, put on like a, a, a costume and appear as an angel of light. So you've got to be careful. A lot of cults have been generated because, because somebody pretended to do something miraculous. Somebody pretended to do some action that they said, oh, this person must be sent from God. Look at what they do. And you find out uh, they, were, they were phony. Even in this area, there's been groups that have come in under the guise of a revival, and it turns out they were a bunch of phonies. They were living a double life. They weren't authentic, okay? So Jesus was challenged, but Jesus gave authentic signs. He gave real signs. And you see those seven signs there, and we'll look at those as we, as we get to them. There are other things that Jesus, we see in the Gospel of John. There's seven I am statements. You know the I am? I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's seven of those. Why do you think there's seven? Why not eight? What about nine? Because again, John, everything is done with an intentionality and deliberateness to show the authenticity of Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, I am the true vine. There's also in this symbolic, we're talking about the symbolic use of the Gospel of John, just in an overview to give you a little, little appetite as you start reading, look for key words in John. He uses the word life, life a lot. Uh, he talks about how life, this life, uh, was in Christ himself. That uh, He talks about the new birth, the new life that he presented to Jesus. The picture of the spiritual life. And he pictured life in Christ as like 
not just physical life, but a spiritual life. John uses light and darkness. Remember, Jesus came uh, to his own, and the darkness uh, uh, would not receive it. Men love darkness, he says in John 3, 19, rather than the light. He talks about light and darkness. So the reason I'm pointing these things out is that as you read, as you read the Gospel of John on your own, you come across and you say, wow, I've seen that word life a lot. I've seen that word light and dark a lot. You may want to underline and circle it because, again, nothing is there by accident. In John 10.10, he uses another word a lot, and that's the word world. In the Greek, we know cosmos. But in John 1.10, I don't think it's on the screen, but if you have your Bible, just look at chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, it, and you see three different ways that it, uh, that it uh, is mentioned here. It says that Jesus was in the world, John 1.10. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now, the first two worlds, he's talking about the earth and everybody that inhabits it. But the third time in John 1.10, when he mentions the world, he's not talking about the cosmos. He's not talking about the universe. He's not talking about the people of the world. He's talking about the world in reference to those who rejected Jesus, the, the sinfulness of people who did not respond to Jesus. When he says, and the world did not know him, the people who, did, uh, the sinful humanity did not receive him as the gift that God had sent him. So, for example, again, all I'm pointing out, out there is that as you read, look for t- terms and words that are different and recurring words that John uses. So he is selective, he uses symbolic language, but there's a third aspect in our introduction this morning, and that is that the Gospel of John is an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. The Gospel of John is an eyewitness witness account of the life of Jesus. It's eyewitness news, all right? John 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs, it says, in the, what? Presence of the disciples, okay? John was one of those disciples. He was one of those eyewitnesses. He himself was an eyewitness. He could bear testimony that these things actually happened. He would write later, um, in, 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 uh, in the scripture we'll look at it in a minute. But you know, and something I didn't mention in the introduction is that John uh, was not just the author of what we call the gospel according to John, but he also wrote later on towards the end of your New Testament, you'll see three shorter letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Chuck Swindoll calls those uh, New Testament postcards uh, because they're shorter, they're shorter books. And he also received the book of Revelation. Now, I use the word received intentionally. He did not write like he was the original author of the book of Revelation. He received the book of Revelation. It was, what is Revelation? It's something revealed. Revelation was a revealing to John. He just became the scribe of what he wrote by what he saw. Okay, He wasn't the author of it in that sense. He received it. So we know we have the Gospel of John, the three letters of John, and then the book of Revelation. But in one of those shorter letters, something as, that's, that he talks about being an eyewitness, and we did this when we did the series on 1 John, 1 John 1. 1 John 1, he begins this letter to first, in 1 John 1. He says, and listen to how he accounts being an eyewitness. He says, that which was from the beginning 
which we have, what does it say? Heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Verse 2, the life was made manifest. It, it was made real. It was made alive. And we have, here it again, seen it. We testify to it. We bear witness to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse 3, and that which we have seen and heard, which we've seen and heard, that's what we're telling you about. So in other words, John later on says, look, I'm not just, we're just not making this stuff up. We actually were there. We heard it. We saw it. We touched him. We were eyewitnesses. So when we read the account of John, we're reading an eyewitness account of the truth of John. Something kind of interesting, just as a, a little side note, is that um, there is, when you read the Gospel of John, there's what is called internal, internal evidence that points that John uh, was, was there and he was an author. But there's also external evidence. That means things that were outside and even historical that support that John was the author and that the events were accurate that, that John wrote. Uh, and you may know this term when we talk about the church fathers. Church fathers was the term used to those who came after the apostles. So when the apostles died, you had a generation that came into church leadership after the death of the apostles, and they're oftentimes referred to as the church fathers. One of the church fathers was a man by the name of Polycarp, Polycarp. He was later a martyr. He was killed because of his faith. And he was a protege, or if you will, a disciple of the Apostle John. Now, another church father, who was a little younger than Polycarp, writes, his, his name was Irenaeus. Irenaeus, in one of his writings, writes about, as a kid, listening to Polycarp talk about conversations he had with the Apostle John. Irenaeus, who came a little later, the apostles are dead, but he talks about being a little kid, hearing John's protege, his disciple, Polycarp, talk about being discipled by John. I don't know about you, but I would think that'd be pretty cool to listen to. Huh? And then there's a last, there's a last aspect to our overview framework. Number four is that the Gospel of John is written so that you may believe in Jesus. That's what we're going to be talking about all in this series, so that you would believe. You say, well, I, need, I am a believer. Well, believe and have it strengthened. Believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be as Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that through him you have eternal life. Look at John 20, 31 again. And these are written, so that, so that. You see, so that, so what? So that you may believe. These things are written, so that you may believe. And it isn't just belief, it isn't just a faith in faith. Sometimes we'll say, well, you know, Senator so-and-so, he's a man of great faith. Well, what does that mean? He believe, you know, he has faith the sun's going to rise the next day? Or, I mean, what does that mean? It can mean anything. It's meant to kind of just project that, oh, he's a, he's a spiritual person. Maybe he is, maybe he is. I don't know. 
faith is only as good as the content. I mean, you may have your you may put faith in a broken chair and be very sincere about sitting in that broken chair and then fall because you sat on a defective chair. You may have great and you may have been very sincere. But your faith in, the, in that content of that chair was faulty. Why? Because that chair was not reliable. One of the things that the Gospel of John will help us in is making sure you don't hook your eternity to the wrong wagon. Jesus said in Matthew 24, there will be many that come in the latter days claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah sent from God, claiming to uh, have signs and wonders. You want to make sure that you've invested your eternity in the only true Son of God. Because listen, these stakes are really high. So John isn't just writing that you'd believe and believe. Notice how specific he is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ, Christos, that's the Greek uh, equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. That you would believe that He's the Messiah, that He's the Son of God. That there are specific things in the Christian, in a, in the Christian identity, in the Christian understanding. Um, I was sharing this, I, I've shared it a lot, but some of you know what the game Jenga is. How many of you ever played Jenga? All right? Jenga. You know the little pieces of wood, right? Do we, I think we still have it, but with grandkids, there's five pieces that, who know, the dog ate them, they're missing, whatever. So I don't know. But, but Jenga, you know the whole object of the thing, these little pieces of wood. And the whole idea is everybody to pull a piece of wood out, and then whoever pulls the piece of wood out that it collapses, they lose, Right? Well, in Christianity, there are pieces that you pull them out, the whole thing collapses. You don't have Christianity. You deny the person of Jesus Christ in that He is God of very God, that He is sinless, that He was born of the Virgin, that He died a sinless death, that He bodily was buried, that He bodily, physically rose from the dead. There are certain aspects of the Christian faith that you pull those things out, guess what? You might have Christianity on your letterhead. You might have Jesus on your building in the name of your religion. But you do not have Christianity. You've denied the historical faith. So John is saying there are some very specific things that if you're going to believe, and belief here, by the way, is not just an intellectual assent or an intellectual understanding. We've said that before. It isn't just that I believe George Washington was the first president of the United States. You just believe the facts. And some people, that's kind of the way they've lived their Christian life. They believe, they've come to believe in, certain, in the facts. And there are facts. Okay, don't misunderstand me. But the belief that the New Testament talks about isn't just belief. It is more of a trust belief. It means that I have confessed that Jesus Christ is who He said He is, that He is Lord of my life, that what the Bible says about me as, as a sinner alienated because of sin before God, 
that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son, in John 3 language, who has come to bring life and to rescue me from my sin. And so it is a trust that my hope, when you stand, it, uh, when you, if you, again, the picture of, of before heaven, and, and you were asked, why should we allow you into heaven? And if you say, well, you know, I went to church on that first Sunday in October, and I had communion, and, you know, I dropped a few bucks in the offering box, and, uh, you know, I'm living a pretty good life. Eh, that's not the right answer. I don't know if there will be a buzzer up there or not. Um, <laughs> I, I doubt there will be, all right? But if you say, really almost kind of like the thief on the cross, why are you here? He didn't go through any membership. He didn't. He wasn't even baptized, and we believe in baptism. Why? Because the man on the middle cross said I could come. He said I could be here. He said I was allowed. That's all that matters. It's because the man in the middle said I could be here. That's it. That's it. So simple, and yet so profound. And if you have any other answer then you've hooked your wagon to a falsehood. John is not just writing a set of facts or theological declarations. It's interesting that in the Gospel of John, the word believe is never used as a noun. It's always used as a verb. The verb believe is used 98 times. It means that the word believe is meant not just as a noun of, of doctrine, but believe is meaning that it is a response of faith, of trust, that I believe, I embrace, I stake my eternity on this man, on this Jesus. Faith is a personal commitment to the person of Jesus Christ. It's faith in Christ and it's following Christ, okay? It isn't just faith in Jesus, I checked the box, I walked the aisle, I got wet, I'm joined a church. No, none of that will matter. All that matters is that your confidence and faith in your life, why, why, should I, why should you be allowed in heaven? And there should be only one answer in your heart and your mind, is because of Jesus Christ saving me. Because Jesus Christ said I could come. If there's any other, you know... If it's Jesus said I could come, plus, plus, I won't give you any more buzzers, but that's not the adequate answer. And the New Testament is so clear. And the church battled, do we, do we include the law? In other words, remember the first big issue in the church in the book of Acts was do we, do we still maintain obedience to the law and all the legalisms of the dietary laws and the Sabbath keeping. By the way, there's more than one Sabbath. The Sabbath keepings, all the festivals, all those things that were meant to be pictures and signs of the coming of Jesus. They were never intended to be means that people became righteous. Paul said that in Galatians. He said if righteousness could come by the law, God would have given a law. But faith and trust and righteousness only comes through Jesus Christ. So we'll see that all the way through the Gospel of John. One final thing to persuade you of why you should read and study 
in these coming weeks and months, literally, along in the Gospel of John, let me give you just some really practical, simple things. Why should you read and study along in the Gospel of John? Number one is you'll get to know Jesus better. You'll get to know Jesus better. I don't think anybody in this room says, yeah, you know, I got that down. I know Jesus. I got it down. I know about everything there is to know about him. I don't think so. You see, some need to understand that Jesus is about a relationship. It's not about a religion. Okay? Get to know Jesus better. John will help us do that. Secondly, John helps us to understand what it means to be a disciple, a disciple of Jesus. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. Why should you spend time reading on your own the book of John, coming faithfully on Sunday, growing with us on Sunday morning as we walk through this? Is because you, you will understand better what it means to be identified to be a follower of Jesus. What does that mean? What does that look like? Thirdly, is that you'll grow in knowing God as your heavenly Father. Something I read this week that noted that in the Gospel of John is one of the most um, expansive portrayals of God as Father. You know, the, there, we, there's one God, but He operates in, in a Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so there's one God, we are monotheistic, but God is expressed in three personalities, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so Jesus spoke greatly about the Father, His heavenly Father. What does it mean to understand God as your Father? Jesus is the Son. But what does it mean to understand God as your Father? The Gospel of John helps us to grow and understand that better. I'll give you uh, one scripture in John 14, 21 from the New Living Translation. Those who, Jesus said, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. You see, you love the Son, you're going to learn the love of the Father. And don't we understand that as natural parents? You treat my children well, guess what? I'll treat you well. You rotten to my kids, right? That doesn't work, does it? You see, we get to know the Father through Jesus. Remember, Jesus would say, I only do see, hear, speak what I hear my Father speaking. We want to know God as Father. We want to know the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Fourthly, of why we should read and study the Gospel of John, I find this is going to be a fun thing walk through is we, we're going to learn how Jesus communicated, communicated the love of God with skeptics, doubters, seekers, and even enemies. You want an evangelism training course? The Gospel of John will do you well. For example, Jesus did not always witness, if you witness, communicated uh, the truth of God, you as you see in the Gospel of John, he didn't do that the same way with everybody. I'll give you an example. In John 3, Nicodemus, uh, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, pretty big top guy, 
there in the rulership of Israel. Remember he came to Jesus at night? I always want to preach Nick at night. I don't know why. I just One day. One day, Elliot, I'm going to use that title. Maybe when we come to John 3, I'm going to use that title. Uh, and Jesus communicated him in a whole different level. Remember he talked about being born again and and. and Nicodemus like, what are you talking about? Being born and, and, and remember Jesus said, you're a teacher of the law and you don't, these are, you don't understand what I'm saying? I mean, he's talking to him differently. You go to the next chapter, you find the woman at the well. Jesus had a completely different approach and how he communicated the love of God to the woman at the well. You see, the reason some of us don't like quote-unquote witnessing isn't because we're ashamed of Jesus. It's because communicating the love of God can't be reduced to a 10-point vacuum sales salesman appeal. And if you sell vacuums door-to-door, I don't mean to offend you. God bless you. I don't think anybody does that anymore. I don't think anybody opens the door for anybody. Even those poor Girl Scouts don't even get any help. But you see, it's not, and people listen, And you, some of you know this too. Nobody wants to be somebody's project. I know what people mean, and I've used it, so nobody be offended. I get the term soul winning. We want people winning. We want people winning. We want the whole life. We want God because God wants the whole life, all right? Uh, we're not winning like we're going to have. And, you know, some churches make it like a contest. Like how many, you know, how many kind of widgets can we sell this month? You don't see any of that in the way Jesus did it. Jesus shared and communicated the love of God in a very normal, natural, and guess what? He relied on the Holy Spirit to lead and guide him into every conversation. Because the Holy Spirit may lead you and guide you to converse with somebody and, and along a different way that you may not. And that's what you see in just those two examples. John 3 and John 4. Completely different people, different approaches. So, we'll learn how to communicate the love of God better. And last, and this seems to be something John just... In, in 1 John, he drills this down when we did that study in 1 John 5th. Is that... Walk, will walk with the assurance, the assurance that you're a child of God. The assurance, the, the knowing that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know, that, and you're knower that you know. That's not a, that's not a, and some people say that Christians are so, uh, you know, it's not arrogance. Because arrogance is a, is a result of a lack of understanding of the grace and mercy that we don't deserve anything. Right? No, it's the assurance. The assurance of what? The assurance not based on what I've done, but the absolute confidence and assurance of what Jesus did on Calvary for me. Jesus paid it all, all to him, I owe. He didn't pay 
it isn't like there's a, uh, there's not a deductible. We'll be talking about deductibles here in Florida for a while. Well, Jesus will pay 80, but you've got to pay 20. No, it's 100%. 100% of the time for 100% of those who will come to him and believe. 